Let's pray together before we begin the message. Every week, Father, we're so conscious that the creation of the things extolled in the Beatitudes in the hearts of your people requires more than a human act. If people are to thirst and hunger for righteousness, it's got to be of you. And I beg you, Father, that you would be pleased in your great mercy to use the preaching of your word to create that hunger and that thirst. In Jesus' great and holy name we pray. Amen. Some of the most evocative words in the Old Testament come from the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't look it up. I'm only going to allude to these in passing. They go like this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, what does that mean? That God has put eternity in your mind and withheld from you a vision of the beginning and the end that might satisfy that. Augustine, I think, puts it like this. He says, we were made for thee, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Jeremiah put it like this. He said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so there's a longing, an unsatisfied, inconsolable longing. Let me read you a poem. I fell in love with a poet called George Herbert back when I was in college taking a course in poetry, English poetry. And I've never read anything that better expresses why there is an inconsolable longing in your heart today, mine, than this poem. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. So strength first made away, then beauty flowed. Then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet, let him keep the rest but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. God has put eternity in our hearts. There is an inconsolable longing in every human soul. We try to satisfy it with scenic vacations and accomplishments of creativity, cinematic, stunning productions, 
Star That's what Star Wars is all about. Sexual exploits, national sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, the pursuit of managerial excellence, etc., etc., and the longing remains. Isaiah, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Many of you here this morning have a deep soul longing. Your heart is hungry for something. Everywhere you look, the grass is greener than where you stand. And the sad thing is that many of you, instead of hearing that as the beckoning of God to come home, and to drink at the fountain of living waters, you turn away from that beckoning to R-rated video cassettes, alcohol, drugs, tanning parlors, new toys, and everything turns to ashes in your hands. The thrill of lust leaves the sediment of guilt and loneliness. The drugs and the alcohol can't keep you from waking up in the real world morning after morning to the messed up relationships. The tan looks so artificial and fades so quickly. And the new toy, whether it's a computer or a hi-fi, Boredom city in five weeks. Ashes is all you've got left when you drink at broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. And so more and more the words of C.S. Lewis come true. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus has something to say to this longing this morning, and I want to direct your attention to his word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is the fourth beatitude. We're looking at them in this Lenten season to listen to the Lord as he teaches on the way to Calvary. The sixth or the fourth beatitude in verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I just want to meditate with you for a few minutes on two things. One, what is righteousness in this verse? What is it that our hunger and our thirst should be directed to? And second, what is this hunger? What is this thirst? What's it like? And how does it yield satisfaction? So let's take the first question first. What is righteousness in Matthew 5, 6? And the way I would like to go about finding an answer to that question with you is simply to look at the other places where the word righteousness is used in Matthew chapter 5. 
There are five instances of this word in these three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't have time to look at all of them, so we'll just look at the nearest two. The first is in verse 10. Chapter 5, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does righteousness mean in verse 10? And does it shed any light back on verse 6? You've got to see the structure of the Beatitudes to answer this question. There are some really good things to recognize. Let me review back a few weeks. You remember I said that there were eight Beatitudes ending in verse 10 with verse 11 being an expansion of the eighth Beatitude? So that verse 10 and verse 3, the last and the first Beatitudes, are like pieces of bread in a sandwich. And the first piece of bread is like the last in that both of them have the words of reassurance, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Do you see that? So that you have a sandwich of eight Beatitudes. What we didn't notice is that in this sandwich of eight, you have two groups of four. The fourth in each group having a reference to righteousness. The first group of four ends in verse six with the words, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And the second group of four ends in verse 10 with the statement, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. So the end of the two groups is with righteousness. One hungering for it, evidently because it's lacking. The other being persecuted for it, evidently because it's abounding. Now, when you see that, you are moved to ponder, what about the other groups of three? So look at the first group. What are the first three Beatitudes? They are descriptions of emptiness, brokenness. Number one, blessed are you who are poverty-stricken in spirit. Number two, blessed are you who are grieving over your sin and misery. Number three, blessed are you who meekly, like a punching bag, receive criticism instead of being defensive and, and retaliating. Those are descriptions of blessed emptiness. And isn't it natural then that they should be followed with a blessing upon hunger? Aren't people who are empty eventually drawn to be hungry? Oh, I don't want to be empty always. I want righteousness. I don't just want grief for my sin. I want to be righteous. And then what do you find in the next three? More emptiness? No way. Overflowing mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be sown mercy. Next, blessed are the pure. Next, blessed are not the peaceful, but those who have the resources to go out and make peace. You see the difference between the first three and then the next group of three? And isn't it natural then that you would expect that when mercy is abounding and purity that's radical from within is abounding and peace is being made, that you would then be criticized and persecuted for righteousness. Now, there's your definition, isn't it? 
You don't have to go anywhere else for a definition. If the first three Beatitudes of emptiness end in a hunger for righteousness, that hunger and satisfaction spills over into mercy and purity and peacemaking, and it gets smashed with persecution for righteousness. You know what righteousness is. Righteousness is mercy. Righteousness is purity. Righteousness is peacemaking. And there's your definition. Now let's see if that is confirmed in the next use of the word righteousness. It's in verse 20 of chapter 5. I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know what comes next. What comes next after this statement that a disciple's righteousness must exceed a Pharisee's righteousness, what comes next are six illustrations of surpassing righteousness. Let's look at them one at a time, briefly. First illustration, verses 21 to 26, we must not only not kill, but more. We must not sustain anger against a brother, but seek peace. Illustration number two, verses 27 to 30, we must not only not commit adultery, but more. We must not look upon a person lustfully. Illustration number three, verses 31 to 32, We must not condone divorce, even though there is a legal provision for it in the Old Testament. We should surpass the righteousness that makes peace with hardness of heart and keep our covenant commitments and not marry those who don't. Illustration number four. Verses 38 to 42, we should not only not poke out two eyes. Well, I skipped one, didn't I? Verses 33 to 37 is the fourth illustration. Not only not uh, keep your oaths or not only keep your oaths, but more, don't even need an oath in order to be believed. And then the fifth illustration, verses 38 to 42, Not only don't poke out two eyes when one of yours has been poked out, but more, surpass that righteousness and turn the other cheek and do good to those who treat you evilly. And the final illustration is in verses 43 to 48. Not only should you love your neighbor, you should also more love your enemy. So it's clear what Jesus is doing when he follows the word, unless your righteousness surpass Pharisaic law keeping, you won't get into heaven. Here's what I mean. Mercy, purity, peacemaking, and our definition is confirmed. So we know what righteousness is in this sermon. Righteousness is being pure and doing good, especially mercy and peacemaking. And that's the answer to the first question. What is righteousness? Matthew 5, 6. Second question. What is it to hunger 
and thirst for this. What's that experience? What's he talking about with these physical images of of hunger, stomach growling? Some of you may be hungry right now. What is that when you translate it into the spiritual phenomenon of going after righteousness? Let's talk about children for a moment. Attention, children. Okay, I can talk to you for a minute. There was a big, fat, happy, godly, wise man who lived at 80 years ago. His name was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote something that I want to read that's very true. It goes like this. We all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited about being told that Tommy opened the door and saw a dragon. A child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened the door. Boys like romantic tales, but babies like realistic tales because they find them romantic. This proves that even nursery tales only echo an almost prenatal leap of interest and amazement. These tales say that apples were gold only to refresh the forgotten moment when they discovered, when we discovered that they were red. These tales say that rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. And I know that this is true because I've been telling tales to my sons for 13 years And I can remember Karsten, who in our imaginary characterization is Quintal. There's Quintal and Quinji and Quabe and Quarney. And I can remember how Quintal, Karsten, was held spellbound at two years old by this narrative. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Quintal. One morning, he woke up very early. And he got out of bed and put on his red slippers and his blue bathrobe and came downstairs to breakfast. There on the plate was a hot egg that mommy had just cooked. Smoke curled up into the air. It was yellow in the middle and white around the edges. And it was so good. And after breakfast, Quintal got dressed and went outside in the sunshine to play and he had fun all day. (laughs) Spellbound with the romance of reality at two years old. And it's still true. I told, I read that to Barnabas yesterday And he was just spellbound sitting in my lap. And I said, did you like that story? And he said, yes, tell me another story. (laughs) For the other guys, I have to produce accurate descriptions and monsters and weapons and complicated plots and sound effects nowadays. (laughs) 
but not with Barnabas. Smoking eggs and red slippers will do fine. What does that mean about us human beings? Does it mean that all of your longings, all the greener grass out there is really a sign that you want to get back to being two again and see the giraffe's neck for the first time. It can't be. Or to see that rivers flow with, of all things, water. I don't think that's right. I do not think that's what your longings mean. That would be like coming over to my house and looking at my photograph of the Reformer's Wall with Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Beza and saying, oh, if I could have just been there with you when you took that picture to see those statues. That's not what you want. You want the real Calvin. The real Luther, the real Zwingli, the real rough and tumble of the 16th century and those great issues. What's a statue? Nor does a river satisfy the human longing even if you could see it with the eyes of a two-year-old for the first time. Because it's only a pointer, isn't it? It's only an echo, it's only a shadow, it's only an image of the river whose streams make glad the city of God that flows from the throne of God clear as crystal with living trees of life on either side whose fruit are for the healing of the nations. That's what your heart is after. To drink from the fountain of God in the presence of the Almighty and you will never be satisfied until you drink there. And so, it's a great danger at this point to conclude, ah, if I could just get away to the boundary waters and see things like a two-year-old, then I would be satisfied. Wrong. And we know that it's wrong because the Lord Jesus himself warns us at this point with Matthew 5, 6. He did not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. Why not? The people who are satisfied in the fourth beatitude are not people who've gone off into the woods to find a solitary relation to God mediated by the beauty of nature. You try it, it will backfire with a vengeance. He didn't say that. And I think there are two reasons why he didn't. I'll just talk about one of them since it's late. Look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doers. They called him Lord. They were orthodox. Believed in the deity of Jesus. They had charismatic gifts of prophecy. They healed the sick and cast out demons. And he turned them away at the judgment. Why? Because they weren't hungry for righteousness. They did evil, not righteousness. They were evildoers, not righteous doers. They thought they knew him. They thought he knew them. And he says, I never knew you. I only know people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Not people who are hungry and thirsty for vertical religious experiences alone. So here's the second warning. You can blow it eternally, brothers and sisters, by heading for the boundary waters and by heading for church. To go get your religious satisfaction from God in the boundary waters or to go get your religious satisfaction from God at Bethlehem and care nothing about righteousness in your family. Nothing about righteousness in your place of employment. Nothing about righteousness in this city's government. Nothing about righteousness in this world will wind you up at the judgment day hearing the most awful words anyone could ever hear. I never knew you. Deep and lasting satisfaction for our souls comes not from delights of the world or from merely vertical delights in worship. Truly deep and lasting satisfaction in life comes from the struggle to be like God, to be like Jesus. You know Jesus when you struggle to be like Jesus in the hardest places of your life. That marriage, that employment, that child. Then you will know Jesus, not when you have religious highs at Bethlehem. So I close with an admonition to the children again. Now have your attention one more time. Don't live only in the world of make-believe. I believe in make-believe. Don't just want to make-believe that you're a prince who pulls out his sword and single-handedly defeats the enemy and saves the kingdom. Be that prince in reality. Want to be righteous more than you want to be anything. Or don't just be that princess 
that uses her ingenuity and scrapes, escapes from the, the villain's dungeon and crosses swollen rivers and snake-infested deserts and reaches the castle just in time to warn the king that the enemy is coming. Be that princess. Love righteousness in this real world. Don't just make believe that you're a hero or a heroine. This world needs real heroes and real heroines. All the tales in 20 and 30 and 40 years are going to be written about people who lived with a passion for one thing. Righteousness. Don't live in a dream world trying to go off into the woods finding a pleasure for yourself in this life or go off into a church finding religious highs and just Eating and drinking and watching television and playing with your hi-fi, collecting your coins during the week. What a loss of life in this age and in the age to come. And so my closing admonition to the adults is, it's never too late to change your diet. Do you plan to eat tomorrow morning? Why not eat righteousness? You plan to drink tomorrow? Will you get thirsty tomorrow? Why not drink righteousness? I tell you, you'll come to the end of the day a satisfied woman and a satisfied man. Even if you eat nothing else. And I might just put in a parenthesis here. Fasting fits in right here. You can hear it, can't you? Have you ever fasted for anything? If you're sitting there saying, well, practically, what can I do? I don't feel very hungry for righteousness. I, don't, I feel like going home and turning on the TV, frankly. All I want to do is watch a game today. I don't feel anything of what you're talking about. If you want to want it, God might give you the grace not even to eat dinner today and see what happens inside as you translate that hunger into a hunger for righteousness. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, from whose throne flows the river of life, crystal clear through the streets of the city, with the trees of life on either side, with fruit for the healing of the nations. Cause your people to drink deeply of you today and to be irresistibly hungry and thirsty for righteousness. A passion to show mercy, a passion to be pure, and a passion to make peace. And all God's people said, Amen.